it would be helpful if you could keep that Bible passage open before you. I'll be referring to it uh, through our message. There are times uh, when people will realize the deep corruption and brokenness of this world. And in that realization, uh, there is a good thing. And I think it's very often used by God as a very gracious thing for us to see how wrong things are in this world and to just sense and feel that. Uh, In this passage today, we have a time of great corruption It's referred to later in the Bible as the days before the flood. This was a time of of increasing and rampant wickedness. This passage uh, shows us something that Jesus spoke about. One time when the disciples were with Jesus and they were asking him about when he would reveal himself as the glorious Son of Man and would judge in his return, they asked him a specific question, When will these things happen? Now, Jesus doesn't answer that, but the question for us is just as as important. We're asking the question, when will Jesus return, or when will be the day of judgment? But he didn't tell them when. He did explain this. He did explain what society would be like when that day comes. And this is the phrase he used, as in the days of Noah before the flood. So this is what he says. I'll just read it. This is from Matthew 24. He says this, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So, in this passage, we have these days that were called uh, the days before the flood. And in this passage, what we see in chapter 5 is this. This is the structure of our passage. It begins in 5.1, it ends in 6.8. It's one passage that shows us a genealogy of a family line, as Al helpfully explained. And then there's some explanation at the end, in the beginning of chapter 6. So what you can visualize here is a family tree with these generations, ten generations. And then off to the side of your chart of the family tree, you have some notes explaining. This is what life was like in those days. These are some things that happened during those generations. And so what we have is a a genealogy, a family tree, and then this explanation, these side notes. Um, The line that we're looking at is contrary to the line that we saw last chapter, the line that came after Cain and how wickedness was increasing. There's a parallel here. This line goes from Adam through Seth. And what we saw in the, at the end of the last chapter was this, that that generation, those people in that line of Adam to Seth and on down through Noah, would pray. They would call on the name of the Lord. And so God was preserving something that he promised. And what did he promise? 
He promised back at the time of the curse that one would come through Eve. In fact, her name is Eve, meaning life or life giver, because God promised, even in the curse, that someone would come that would lift this curse by crushing the head of the serpent. So this godly line uh, of Seth is here, where in society wickedness is swelling, and it's, it's sort of ripening to the point where God will judge it. In this genealogy, we see ten generations. And the formula that Al gave us is very helpful. We have uh, so-and-so lived so many years, father to son, lived so many more years, had other sons and daughters, the total years, and then like a thud at the end of each one that's named, and he died. So death is sort of this heavy tone on all of this. One thing that we see, though, is that three of these stand out. They stand apart. The formula is not exact with three of these. With Adam, and then with the seventh, that's Enoch, and with the last, that's Noah. So as we look through this, what we will see is what these men did and what God is telling us about what it's like to live in such a corrupt society as someone that calls on the name of the Lord. Adam, Enoch, and Noah. We'll look at it under those three headings. The first is Adam. The first thing that we see with Adam is that we hear echoes of how God created man and woman originally. That God made us male and female in his image, and he told us to multiply and be fruitful. That was his command and his blessing to Adam and Eve. That still remains. So the language here is that God uh, created man. He made him in the image, in the likeness of God. But then whenever they have a son, and we see Seth, it's that this child is also in the same likeness. The likeness is preserved. That's a gracious thing. Even when sin came into this world, these children and these people that are multiplying in the world are in the image of God. We will see this again with the narrative of Noah. And afterwards, after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah, the Noahic covenant, that the image of God is on and in every single person. It's in every one of you, everyone that you know. This is an amazing thing, that this creation blessing of God's image remains, and it is still multiplying in the world. Now, one of the obvious uh, difficulties for us in our time of reading this passage is how long they lived, right? We were like, wait, People don't really live that long. Did they really live that long back then? Um, I just want to propose this. And then I want to show you from the text something. There is a, um, a biologist, a biomedical gerontologist, who studied at Cambridge University, and he's doing research in California with a team, with lots of funding. His name is Dr. Aubrey de Grey. And he's a Cambridge-affiliated biomedical gerontologist who believes that in our generation right now, aging can be postponed for hundreds of years. You can read articles about him if you just Google the name or just, just look up this, uh, live for a thousand years. Just look that up and you'll find this guy. Now, obviously, you're going to find articles that say, we don't really want that. Fair enough. But look at what they're doing. It's really fascinating. Uh, they are saying that the first person who will live for a thousand years is already alive. And what they believe they can do is they can take our, the, the research of the human genome, of our DNA, and they can prevent it 
from aging by repairing it. And through this repair, prevent the deterioration of our organs and of our bodies so that we could live, they say, a conservative number of a thousand years. I'll let you look at that yourself. But I just want us to consider this. The highest level biologists in our world today are talking about this as a reality. So, what happened? We are asking ourselves from the text of Genesis, what happened? Why do we live much shorter lives than are recorded here? Well, we check our side notes. We're looking at the family tree, but we flip over to chapter 6, and we see some things. We see some things that were happening, and there were some bad things happening at that time. We're reading a little paragraph on the side of this genealogy. God didn't like some of what was happening. God didn't like this increase and this propagation of wickedness. It's okay, Bev, we love you. Uh, in verses 1 and 2, we, we have this phrase, and this is the hardest part to interpret here. The sons of God saw, verse 2, that the daughters of man were, in, in our ESV it says attractive. In other passages it says beautiful. Okay? The word here to understand is that they saw that they were good. The Hebrew word is tov. It's the same language that God uses over and over again in the six days of creation, where God created something, and then he observed it and he judges it. And God says, um, and he created this, and God saw that it was good. What God makes is good. Now, in this passage, what we see is that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were tov. Okay? They were good in some way. And something bad was happening. They were taking any whom they chose. Okay? And God didn't like this. Uh, this is a parallel, then, of a rebellious humanity. There's something lustful about this. There's something that um, doesn't take what God has made as good and accepts it, but says, we desire something here and we will take it for ourselves. We will be the judge, not accepting what God says is right and wrong. This, in fact, where the sons of God, what they're doing, this is, in fact, a parallel to what Eve did. The three aspects of what she did whenever she uh, took the fruit. This is, this is what it says. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, same word, she saw that it was good, she makes a judgment about it, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. So just like Eve with this fruit, what we have here is this brokenness within humanity. And these two titles, I believe, are telling us this. These are the sons of God, the daughters of man, I believe are the two genealogies reflected in the last two passages. Adam is called a son of God. And this line that begins in 5.1 of Adam would be, I think, the many sons and daughters that he had. And so his sons there are intermingling with this line of Cain. And just as God warned his people, the Jews, when they came out of Egypt, that um, not the mixing of ethnicities, but the mixing of these religions will deteriorate the quality of your faith, 
This was something that was happening at that time as well. God doesn't like it, so what does he do? He says in verse uh, 3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh and his days shall be 120 years. In my mind, God is saying, some of these early blessings that man knew, men and women knew, physically, God says, I'm going to limit your length of life. We're going to reduce this. Because there were some other things that were happening as well, but that's the first of two judgments that God passes. Now, continuing with what was happening at that time, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. The Nephilim, the word in Hebrew just literally means the fallen ones. These were something astounding. So we have this parallel phrase of the the sons of God and the daughters of man, if we look at verse 4, and the result is that they were having these children, and there were at that time what were called, verse, uh, the end of verse 4, the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, in, in Babylonian tradition, there's a, an accounting of a flood, and it's a parallel, it's fascinating. Just as if, um, as if what happened was preserved, um, in their account, there is before the flood... Um, a record of, I think it's the Babylonians, of ten kings. I'll check my commentary. Uh, There were ten kings that they said lived these incredible lives, and they were astounding. They were astounding warriors. They were astounding rulers. And they were recorded. These, I believe, are what we get here with these mighty men. Now, mighty men in Hebrew is referring to someone that is just um, a super person. Someone that is like in, in the Marvel movies. It might be a supervillain, it might be a superhero. These were people that were astounding. Uh, they were astounding in strength or in size or in ability. And so they stood out. This was happening, and these, these were uh, dominating. You see also a reference to this phrase, the Nephilim, when the Hebrew spies in Numbers chapter 13 are sent to spy out the land that God had promised them. And they say, the sons of Anak get this label, the Nephilim. Now, they're not genetically descended from those that were the Nephilim before the flood because they were wiped out. But they're given this label that these are like the ones we heard about then. And their astounding trait was their size. They say, we were like grasshoppers before them. And they thought we were like grasshoppers before them. We're calling them Nephilim. So they come back. And they give a bad report. That was the Nephilim. God says that he will judge this. And then God evaluates this down here. Again, we're in these side notes. In chapter 6, we look at verses uh, 5 and 6. The Lord now judges. And he does it in the same way that the sons of God did. It says, the Lord saw, verse 5. So now God is going to judge. What did he see? He saw two things in particular. He saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And he saw that every intention of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. In other words, just as God had said in creation before sin, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Now God is saying, this isn't good. This is in fact very bad. And so God is going to undo what he did in the creation. He's going to wipe out something that has become corrupt. It has become uh, depraved. And this depravity has spread so much that God must now judge it. 
and it says that the Lord was grieved. The judgment comes in verse 7. God says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. This is the Lord's, this is Yahweh's decision to flood. And so we'll pick up on this Noah narrative, which ends our section. It's the life of Noah and the the decreed judgment of God. But we will see this again in the next uh, section. What's happening here, though, is this. It's like there was so much patience that God showed as sin increased, as it grew, as it filled up the potential for evil, and it became ripe. And God says, it's too much now. It has reached the point where I have to reset things. I'm going to clean out uh, what is evil, and I will reset it. We see this when God speaks to Abraham, and he, he tells him what will happen with his descendants. They'll be, they'll be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then he says, because you'll have to be there for a time. Why? Because the land that he's giving them, he says the people that dwell there, their sins have not yet reached maturity. He says specifically that the sins of the Amorites are not yet full. And so this idea that sin will increase only so much and then God will judge it is what we're having here at that time. And it's also what we see what Jesus says about uh, so it will be when the Son of Man returns. So just to be clear, this uh, world will get to the point where God will bring it as we know it to an end. It's a similar thing. So our, our, our question is this. What should we do? How should we live? When society is so corrupt, when we realize something of the, the wrongness of what is happening, that can be a real blessing from God. That can be God waking us up from just following along with the rhythms of this world. That could be God giving us eyes to see ears to hear the beauty of his kingdom. The way that the people in this world are described as eating and drinking, just enjoying the things of this life without reference to God, marrying and giving in marriage from one generation to another. I think of Tevye's song in The Fiddler on the Roof, Sunrise, Sunset, that this idea of we're just living life, we're going on and on, but without reference to God. That's different than Fiddler. Here's the thing. When God gives someone a sense of his reality, and when we come away from the pattern of this world and call on his name, like this generation of Seth did, what happens is we're made alive. There's an old saying that says that any dead fish can swim with the current. And this world is a strong current. But it takes a fish that is alive to swim against that current. So let's look at these next two men in this line. We've looked at uh, Adam. We want to look at Enoch, and we want to look at Noah. Now, Enoch, in the genealogy in chapter 5, if you want to flip back to this, we're in chapter 5. Enoch shows up in verse 21 through verse 24. Enoch is the seventh in this generation, and he is outstanding. And it says that he walked with God. Now, contrary to him, in contrast, the seventh in the line of Cain was Lamech. Remember that guy? It looks like he's described as someone that you would see on the the old TV show Cops that walks out with like a ripped up t-shirt and he's just a brute and he's yelling at his wives and he's, he's wrathful and he's vengeful. He's like the picture of how bad it can get in this world. 
He's a terror. He is, he is a horribly broken man, and he just hurts people. Enoch is the opposite. Enoch is a contrast. So we see that this is something very different. Enoch is given to us later in the Scripture as a model of walking with God by faith. We read this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. By faith, again, faith is uh, the assurance of things hoped for, the certainty of things that you don't yet see. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we're living in a world where we see corruption. Maybe you're, being, you're waking up to the, the reality of corruption. Maybe you have known of the corruption in this world for a long time and the wickedness that is so, uh, so common, so indicative of this world. The difference for God's people is this. They walk by faith. The difference is uh, Micah 6.8. He has shown you, a man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It's the same throughout Scripture. You see in 2 Corinthians 5-7, it says, We walk by faith, not by sight. He walked by faith. This is the difference. A person that, that hears these things of God's kingdom, a person that realizes the difference between the way the world is and the way it ought to be or the way it could be, is someone who is looking for something more. It's someone who is longing for another country and so can find it in God and in this gospel that is throughout Scripture. Enoch walked with God. And it says that he was taken. Uh, this is something amazing. And we're, we, we should look at this. Where was he taken? Well, he was taken somewhere. He was taken to God. God took him to be with himself. Friends, the thing that we should get from this is that there's more than just this world. There is something beyond what we can naturally perceive, what we can grasp and taste and touch. There is more. And Enoch wasn't just taken in a spiritual um, sense. He was taken physically to be with God. The same thing happened to the prophet Elijah. In, in the days of Ahab, Elijah was a prophet of God, and he, he walked with God as well. He was, he was speaking God's truth. He had these showdowns with the, the, um, the prophets of Baal. He saw great uh, victories. He suffered great depression. And at the end, his, the man he was mentoring as a prophet, Elisha, was with him, and chariots as of fire came from heaven and took him up. Enoch and Elijah are two men that we know. They didn't taste death the way most of us have to. They were taken to be with God. There is something more than this world, and we should live not just for this world. If you do live just for this world, here's the outcome. You will eat and drink. Maybe you'll be merry on and off. You'll marry and be given in marriage. Sunrise, sunset. But the bad news is this, that it will be the only good you know. And as it was in the days of Noah, in the days before the flood, wrath, and the reality of God in all eternity will come upon you. And this world will end in disaster. Rather, we are to live by faith. We are to walk with God. And when we see the limits of this world, 
it perhaps will move us to hear something that is beyond this world. And that leads us to faith. That leads us to what the Bible has given us, which we can trust in. And when we, we start comprehending the things that are revealed by God, this divine revelation, what He has done, how He has made a way, how there is a kingdom that is present in this world, but not easily perceived, and it's not naturally perceived, we grasp it and we trust it by faith. And the king has a kingdom. Uh, I mean, the kingdom has a king. <laughs> I guess it works both ways. Um, but here's the question. Where is your faith? You see, faith is a simple word. It just means that you're trusting something. Uh, faith, uh, the old analogy is, you believe something is there and the evidence is that your life reflects it. So that if I were to put, uh, if I were to bring up a volunteer, uh, maybe my son, and I would say, okay, just tell him without looking, there's a chair behind you. Maybe there is a chair there, maybe there isn't a chair. If he believes me, if he trusts me, I'll say, okay, now sit down. And then he can put the weight of his body on that chair. That's just trusting that there is a chair there. Now, if there's not a chair there, he might still have faith in what I've said. But the, the, the thing about faith is this. It needs an object that is true. Uh, our faith can be in Christ, and it ought to be in Christ. If our faith in that analogy for my son, if it's in the chair, there must be a chair there to actually hold him, to hold the weight of his body. Our faith, if it is to be in God, it must be that God is in fact there and that he is able to uphold us. He is able to receive us and to keep us. What we see with Enoch is that his faith was in God. As with this line, they called on the name of, of the Lord. They called on Yahweh by name. So everyone puts their faith somewhere. That's what I'm saying. The way you act, the way you live, will reflect where your faith is, in what object you trust. So it says, without faith it is impossible to please God. In contrast, Enoch walked with God. Here's another question. Do you walk with God? What does it mean to walk with God? To walk with God is this. If you're walking with God you're going in the same direction. You're living in the same direction that Christ went. You're living the way God says, this is the way to go. You're on friendly terms with the one that you walk with. You go through the ups and the downs together with that other person. God is in your thoughts. We used a word in Sunday school this morning, quorum Deo, you live as before the face of God, always thinking about him. So Enoch walked with God. And what we see in Scripture, for example, in Jude 14 through 16, it wasn't easy for Enoch. It was very hard to walk against the pattern of a wicked world, to walk with God. It will be for you. Noah, what we'll see in the next passage next week is this. It was hard for Noah, but he walked with God as well. He, it, was, it was troubling because he was trying to live for God, to walk with God, it became very, very difficult. Now, you can walk as you see fit. You are responsible. You make those choices. But the option here is you can be called to walk with God. And you ought to walk by faith with him. And here's what I would say about this. If the, if the ages of these people are troubling to you, if, 
if the ideas in Scripture don't fit with the way that you're accustomed to thinking and there are mysteries that you haven't solved yet, just let me encourage you in this. You don't solve every mystery to live your life. And you don't have to solve every mystery to walk by faith with God. God has given you enough to weigh the evidence and to believe. That's how you normally live your life. You, you take what is logical and reasonable and you make decisions. The decision that's more reasonable. If you wait to solve every mystery, you will never believe. But enough is there. And I believe that it is more reasonable to trust Christ, to take the evidence he has presented and to walk with him, to trust in him, than it is to reject it. Now, let's turn to Noah. At the end of our passage, we have another man who walked with God, but it's almost, it's sort of a quiet ending for Noah. But it says something amazing. In the way he was named, we see something. Noah was born, and when he was born, we see something different in verse 29. Okay, it says this, that his name was Noah, meaning out of the ground the Lord had cursed. He says, this one shall bring us relief. Uh, from the work of our painful toil, the painful toil of our hands. Now, this word pain shows up three times in this book. It's used here, and then it's used back when God curses the woman and then the man. He curses the woman by saying, I shall multiply your pain in childbearing. To the man he said, Cursed is the ground, in pain you shall eat of it. And now this word Noah means to give rest or to give comfort. In other words, to lift the pain away. So what do we get from this? We get this, that this generation, from father to son, they were waiting for someone. They were waiting for someone, as promised in Genesis 3.15, who would come and lift this curse. Noah uh, was to be a type of the one to come. Noah's name has this blessing on it because people were waiting for this one. And uh, they must have been talking about this. I just picture them thinking, yeah, it's hard. Life is hard. There are thorns and thistles. There, there are just so many difficulties. But God promised. And remember, Eve's name is Eve because God said there's going to come one and he'll give us relief. He'll remove this curse from us. He'll remove the pain that we feel in so many ways in this world. And we can wait for him. And what we see in Scripture is this, that the one that was to come was not Noah. Ultimately, it was Christ. He is the pain lifter. We read this specifically in Galatians 3.13. It says this, Christ has redeemed us from the curse, having become a curse for us. Well, just on very simple terms, the Christian message is this. Christ has come into this world to undo the problem of the curse. You see, the pain of sin that we feel is because we are separated from God and we are under the discipline of the punishment of that sin to a degree. Why we live this, uh, in this world, our lives now, what Christ has done was he came as a person. He became, he, he was joined to our nature. He lived a life of obedience that earned all of God's blessing. And then he died on, a, on the cross. And when he died, he did that to take away the curse so that we could be joined to him. When Christ died, he removed the curse from everyone who was joined to him. And so 
what we have is that people that live by faith see him. We don't just see this concept of the curse and the evil of this world and a hope of relief beyond it. We see the solution in a person. What we see is Christ who came and took the weight of all this pain on himself and the wrath of God that our sin deserves and he took it with him to the grave. And he was a substitute for us. And so he did. It cost him greatly. It cost him dearly. And the question is this. How does it work for us? How do we walk by faith in him? How do we know uh, him and walk with God in this world? Is there any cost to us? Uh, Do you have to earn this? Well, look at chapter uh, 6, verse 8. When Noah, uh, the ending of this passage, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is how it works. This word favor is the Hebrew word for grace. It's the same word that we see throughout uh, the rest of the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, the Greek word uh, means the same thing. That This concept of this freeness of what God gives. How can a person come to walk with God? How can a person live with Him in peace? In Ephesians chapter 2, this word grace is used. And this is the way it works. We were just like the rest of, these, of this wicked generation. We were all in that condition. But God removes us from it. He lets us see who He is. So in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4, it says this, Even though we were like them in wickedness, God made us different. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So do you see it? How does a person walk with God? How can we live with Him? It's a gift that He has given us. It's a gift that we get to receive and then walk in. It's free. You don't earn it. It's in Christ. All that was necessary for this to happen was done by Him. So there is a call now from God for all of us to turn from sin and to trust in Christ. See the wickedness around us. See the the evil that's even within us. And look to Him. Look to Christ. He's our great Redeemer. He's the one that is the pain lifter. Um, In this world, according to God's Word, pain uh, will continue. Evil and wickedness will continue. People will continue to live without reference to God. Marrying, giving in marriage. Eating and drinking without a thought of God, and living just for this world. But you don't have to. So what will you do? Will you live with Him? Will you walk with Him? Will you turn from the pattern of this world to receive His grace? And will you walk as Enoch did, as Noah did, as every believer does, by faith? God's call in the Gospel is this, to walk with Him, even in and through this broken and twisted world by faith, going in an opposite direction. His promise is sure victory. Just as he took Enoch to himself, he will keep you, and he will bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom to have victory over the curse. Let's pray.